psychologists tell us that there are three general ways that people respond to trouble or fear. Anyone know that? See, you all know it. Flight, fight, and freeze. That's basically the idea. So flight is pretty much, I just got to get out of here, all right? Put my jetpack on and let's just get out of here as quick as we possibly can. Maybe you avoid, these people avoid people, maybe they avoid the situation. Then you've got the fighters, right? The fighters are the people who, when they're threatened, when there's a, a trouble or a fear that's in their face, what do they do? Well, they come out swinging. They attack. These are the kind of people kind of thinking, look, the best form of defense is attack. Uh, and what they're doing is they're defending something that is important to them. Um, you may know someone like that who's a fighter in the midst of a fearful situation uh, because anger is a response to fear. And this is uh, particularly the case when it comes to men because in our society, it's not very manly to, uh, to be fearful. But it is quite manly in some sense. I'm not saying from my point of view it is, but our culture would say it's more manly to be angry than it is to be fearful if you're a man. Is that true? None of the men would give me any kind of response. I just That's not true. And what, what men can do, and I think women do it also, is to default to anger in the midst of fear because it's, uh, it's some kind of strategy to actually get control of a world that's out of control. Um, it, it's kind of like you want something and you might not get it, so you fight for it. That's kind of the deal there. And then you've got the people who freeze and they just kind of do nothing. Uh, these are the kind of people where some of you probably, can you just do something? Like I know it's a bad situation, but seriously, you're not getting out while you're just doing nothing. Anyone know anyone like that? Okay, they stay stuck in the fearful situation. You could be all of these at some point in time. Uh, you may have a rather a very well integrated strategy of uh, fight, flight, and freeze. Just uh, whenever the time kind of presents itself, whenever the moment presents itself. Here's what I want you to do. Why don't you just turn to the person next to you and just tell them which one you're more likely to be in a fearful situation? Can you do that? They probably already know. If you know them, they probably already know it. Are you fight, flight or freeze? 30 seconds. All righty. Uh, is everyone brave enough to have a, have a public vote on which one you are to give me a show of hands? Is that okay? And uh, Let's start with the fighters. They'll be really happy to put their hands up. Who's the fighters? Who's the flighters? And who's the freezers? Yeah, see, that's pretty even, pretty even mix. Can you imagine what it would be like to actually live without fear? Can you imagine that? I don't think I can. I mean, there's, there's so much fear that's kind of part of the world that we live in. What would it actually be like if there was no fear as opposed to wearing a T-shirt that just says no fear, which doesn't get rid of fear. It just says that you're fearful of having fear. <laughs> really? <laughs> Today in Mark 4, we're up to uh, the story of Jesus in the boat in the storm on Galilee with the disciples. So uh, let's read it, Mark 4, verse 35 to 41. On that day, when evening had come, note that, it's night, he said to them, Jesus said to the disciples, let's go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. In 1986, the full hull of a fishing boat was found uh, on the northwest shore of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee. And this is what it looked like. Uh, you can see there, it's about 26 and a half feet long, seven and a half feet wide, four and a half feet wide, 
Uh, they did some carbon-14 uh, technology kind of dating on it. They worked out it was around about from the time when Jesus was kicking around. The interesting thing about the, um, the boat here is that the, um, the, the bow and the stern, they kind of had this section, a platform in there. So uh, what we're going to find out is that Jesus was actually lying down having a sleep. So he was actually in the back of the boat lying on this platform with his head on a cushion. The boat was propelled by four rowers, which you can see uh, in the middle there. And they reckon that you could probably fit about 15 people in the boat. So that's probably about 12 disciples and Jesus, which is about 13. So it's, it's in, is this the one that Jesus went in? No, because that's an illustration, okay? <laughs> but is, this, is that one the exact one he was in? Uh, no, uh, probably not. But it was probably very similar to that. Let's keep going. And a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. Beautiful little thing that's completely irrelevant to the whole story. What's good about that bit that he's got his head on a cushion? That's what eyewitnesses do. They tell you stuff that's irrelevant to the whole story. And that's why you can have some confidence in this story because you're getting details that you're not, you don't need. Uh, the cushion doesn't get... It's not like this was a sanctified cushion and the, all the disciples and Jesus sat on this cushion when, it, when the boat flooded and they were able to float. It was a very special... Do you get what I'm saying? There's no point to the cushion other than that his head is on it and it probably feels nice. Uh, and they woke him and they said to him, actually before I go on, the other thing I've just had for you just here now, can you think of any other time in any of the Gospels where Jesus is talked about as being asleep? Yeah, he talks about sleep. He says at one point in time he has nowhere to lay his head. But you know what? This is the only time that Jesus is ever talked about in the whole, all of the Gospels as being asleep. It's an incredibly strange phenomenon in a sense because what's about to happen is really unique. Uh, but he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Which is a bit of a rebuke really. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? I think in uh, Mark 4 in this passage we learn three things about troubles. We learn about the purpose of troubles, the effect of troubles and the master of troubles you see at the start of this scripture you know what jesus does jesus actually says to the disciples let's get in the boat and go across there now there's only one time that i can think of in all of the gospels where it says jesus doesn't know something and that's when he talks about the day that he's coming back from heaven to wrap all of history up he says only the father knows that i reckon jesus knows what's going on he knows that there's going to be a storm and you know what he's doing He's asking his disciples to get in the boat with full knowledge that there's going to be a storm. Now, you might say, oh, hang on. Um, maybe, maybe he didn't know that. Well, you know what? What we know from history and what we know about the Sea of Galilee is that there's often storms on the Sea of Galilee because it's got to do with the airflow and the temperature of air in different locations. And they, oh, I'm not going to bore you with the details. I've got them all here. You can have them later if you want. But basically what happens is air kind of clashes in together and you have a big storm. The Greek word that's translated storm in Mark 4 actually could be translated hurricane. It's another word you could translate it as, right? So you've got to think about this. I think Jesus knows what's going on. I think he knows there's going to be a storm that's almost going to kill him. And he says to the disciples, let's go for a sail. There you go. What kind of sicko is this? 
all right, taking people out into a storm. Well, that's kind of what God does. That's, that's what Jesus often did, is he put his disciples in the position of trouble, in a sense, or challenge, so that they would actually learn something. I think what Jesus is doing here is he's got a discipleship lesson for the disciples. And it's going to happen in the middle of the lake, in the middle of the night, when they think they're going to die. And I want to ask you this morning, do you have a category in your head for God taking you through hard things? Do you have a category in your head for God taking you through hard things? I'm not saying that God's the one who's at fault for the hard things that you go through. But you know, I am absolutely persuaded that God ordains for people to go through hard things, though he's not at fault, that's part of his purposes for them. Now, as a quick recap, and I've, I've done this a bunch of times at the project, we're clear here at the project, I think, about the sources of trouble. I don't think God's some kind of vindictive deity that's out there working out what kind of hell can I take people through and, and give to them. The source of trouble, according to the Bible, can be the fallen world that we live in. It can be our own flesh. I mean, I don't know how many times I've probably heard over the years people complaining about consequences that are clearly just the result of their own actions. And they think, well, what's God doing? Well, at least he's probably not doing anything. It's just you just getting into yourself, you know. You're just giving it to yourself. Others can sin against us. Obviously, uh, we've got the devil kicking around. He likes to just wreck stuff and lie to people and devour stuff. And then there's uh, times in the Bible where it looks like things are happening because God's actually wanting to bring some kind of redemptive activity about and for his own glory's sake. Probably the, the most famous Old Testament story about this whole notion that there's purpose in parables is actually Joseph. You know the story of Joseph? I think he had 11 brothers, wasn't it? And uh, he went to check up on his brothers one day. He was a spoiled kid. He was, he, was his, he was the favorite of his father. He went to check up on his brothers and they thought this is a good time to kill him uh, when he's away from his dad. And uh, what they end up doing, they, one of the brothers, Reuben, just kind of says, listen, let's not kill him because he was kind of thinking, how can I treat my brothers or work out some way to get Joseph back to his dad? Uh, anyway, they just obviously there's some kind of impasse. They stuck him in a pit. And then uh, when Reuben, I think when Reuben wasn't around, you have to check that. From memory, Reuben wasn't around. And then the other brothers, a, a train of camels kind of came past. And uh, the other brothers thought, okay, what's the point in us killing him? We're not going to profit out of that. So let's sell him. At least we can get some money for it. So they sold him and he goes off to Egypt. And, um, and it's an amazing story in Egypt too. He goes into Egypt. He becomes, uh, he's a slave to, to Potiphar, uh, an Egyptian official. He does his job really, really well. Turns out his um, Potiphar's wife wants to get jiggy with him. At some point in time, he says, I'm not going to do that. Uh, so he kind of uh, takes off. He ends up running out and she kind of claims that he, he raped her. So he ends up getting thrown in jail. He's in jail. He's got a couple of dudes in jail with him that he's talking with. He interprets a dream for him. He says to one of them, when Pharaoh gets you out of jail and promotes you, can you remember me? So the guy gets out of jail and he completely forgets Joseph. So you've got this guy languishing in a prison. Um, and then in the end, what ends up happening is Pharaoh has this uh, dream and no one can interpret it. But God gives Joseph the interpretation of the dream. And what ends up happening is Joseph ends up being in charge of all the grain and all the food in the midst of a seven-year-long famine. And what happens is his brothers come to Egypt because they're out of food and they don't even know it. And they come and as God would have it, Joseph was in charge to look after 
his own family and getting the food for his own family. And then you've got this whole process in the back end of Genesis where Joseph and, uh, and his brothers interact over a whole bunch of uh, times without them even knowing that it was him. And then in the end, he discloses it and they're crying and it's all this amazing time. There's this really interesting end to the whole story where Jacob, Joseph's dad, and his, obviously his brother's da- dad as well, dies. And the brothers have obviously had a conversation and they've said, we're stuffed now. Joseph's only been good to us because dad was around and now we're stuffed. Now he's going to get us. And so they go to him and they just kind of fess up and they just plead to him for mercy. Um, And they just say, sorry for everything they've done. And it's just this really interesting scene where Joseph comes out. You know what he says? He goes, you meant it for evil. Everything that you did, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And so Joseph had this amazing revelation that in the midst of all this evil that was coming upon him, that in one sense was undeserved, that there was the purpose of God, the thread of God's purpose was running through all of it. He had that. And I want to ask you today, do you have that? Because I want to suggest to you today, there's one thing that's worse than trouble. And that's trouble that has no point. Isn't that right? Because that's the thing, like what's really interesting is you, if you look at anyone who's, who's a Christian, who goes to church, even people who don't go to church, who don't have anything to do with God, you know what they want to look for in the midst of trouble is they say, where's the hope in it and where's the purpose in it? Because it's almost unbearable to go through trouble without any purpose. Isn't that true? And some of you, I know that some of you are going through some really intense trouble. And you better just lock it in that God has purpose in it. Because it's going to kill you otherwise. And some people, when, when trouble gets to the point where it has no purpose and it doesn't seem to be ending, it actually physically kills people. They, they take themselves out. I can't do this anymore. James chapter 1, verse uh, 2 to 4 says this. It says, Can it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds? Now, you, you probably sit there and you just go, okay he's putting it on me again i'm not putting it on you right you know what the very next word is after kinds four does anyone know the rest of that scripture let me read the rest for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness do you hear that now i could go on and read the rest of it but what i really want you to get out of this is you don't face trials that are purposeless james is saying that He's going, you can actually be happy about trials coming your way because they're not empty in terms of purpose. They actually have a whole bunch of purpose. And then he goes on to list what the purpose of the trials are for you. And he's kind of saying that purpose makes it so good that you could leap like someone on a Toyota ad, you know, an extra on a Toyota ad, right? That's what he's saying. He's going, if you've got a handle on the purpose of God in the midst of your trouble, you jump up in the air. One of the classic scriptures that we're uh, pretty good at quoting to people in the midst of trouble is uh, Romans 8.28. You know that one? And to be honest, I think we quote it too quickly. This is the one, all things work together for good for those that love God who are called according to his purpose. Now, when I say I think we quote it too quickly, you know what I think we do? We quote it to people as in like, shut up, suck it up. There's going to be a purpose to it and you just better get over it. Now, I would encourage you, if you quote it in that way, to probably quote it that way a bit less. All right? 
That would be my encouragement to you today. But do you know what? If that verse is not true, we are all in a hell of a lot of trouble. It's one of those scriptures that gets abused by the way it gets used, but if it's not true, we're in all sorts of trouble. Anyone with me on that? Because I need to know, and you need to know, for you to do life in this world, well, you need to know that there's a God who's overseeing everything that happens to you and that there's nothing that actually gets wasted. Tim Keller said this, he said, if you have a God great enough and powerful enough to be mad at because he doesn't stop your suffering, you also have a God who is great enough and powerful enough to have reasons that you can't understand. It's an insightful comment. Been reading this sensational book. Anyone who's friends with the project on Facebook's probably read half of it because I've been posting excerpts out of it all the time um, by a guy called Paul Miller. And uh, I've just bought a whole bunch of copies. So if you want to buy one off the church, you can buy one off the church. It's called The Praying Life. And uh, in his book, he spends quite a lot of time talking about the, um, the gap between our expectations and reality and how that gap between our expectations and reality can really just annihilate your prayer life and make prayer very, very difficult. He makes this uh, insightful statement. Often when you think everything has gone wrong, it's just that you're in the middle of a story. This is what it's like with trouble on this world, on this earth. See, you get the privilege of reading the whole story in Mark 4, don't you? You get it all. And you know Jesus gets up in the end and he says, shut up to the environment and it does but in the middle of it what are the disciples doing well they think they're going to die now they're very seasoned experienced fishermen but it's such the storm is such and they don't know the ending to the story they just think they're going to die and so they're blurting out to jesus in the middle of it is don't you care if we drown it's kind of like i'm in the middle of this story and i don't know how it ends and i don't like the way that it's going at this point in time and you need to do something and it can be like that in life when you go through trouble is you just kind of think Jesus doesn't seem to be doing anything. I'm in the middle of the story. I don't see any good purpose in it. And he just better do something and fit in kind of with my plans because I don't like where my story's going. You know, if you read through the scriptures, you'll find a lot of biblical characters that get stuck in the middle of their story. Let me give you another one. Another one is Moses. What does Moses do? Well, Moses thinks God's plan to... uh, to redeem his people in Egypt is to kill Egyptians, basically. So he takes out an Egyptian guy and he runs away. God comes to him and he says, I want you to go back to Egypt and tell everyone, tell the Pharaoh, I should say, that we want all, all the people to come out. So he goes back, he meets with the elders in Egypt, the elders of all the Israelites in Egypt just go, Woo-hoo-hoo! how good is this? God's coming. And he's coming to rescue us and he's hurt us. We've been in slavery for 400 years. It's going to be good. So Moses and Aaron go up to Pharaoh and they say, you better let our guys go or God's, God's people go. And you know what Pharaoh does? He makes it worse, doesn't he? He makes it worse. The conditions upon the people are worse. And you know what happens? They're good humans, aren't they? Because we'd probably do it too. They start complaining. All of a sudden, the elders who are, this is good, are just going, you're an idiot. What are you doing? Now it's worse. And it's like you end up with this... Um, where is it? It's in, uh, it's in Exodus 5. You end up with this, 
intense time where the people of Israel are kind of getting into Moses and, and Moses struggling with this whole thing that he's in the middle of a story. And look at what Moses says. He says, Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. Do you hear that? They're just right in the middle of a story. So what the heck are you doing? Well, you know what? When you're in the middle of a story, you know what you need to do? Here's a quick tip. Don't stop. Don't stop. You don't stop in the middle of a story, do you? Or you don't get to the end. If you stop, you don't get to the end. It's not over. The story's not over. And some of you today, probably, maybe some of you are going through some stuff and you just kind of, I just want to stop. I'm just saying don't stop. Don't stop in the middle of the story. You, you don't know where the story is going to end. Keep going. You see, the disciples think that if Jesus really loved them, then he wouldn't let them go through the storm. You know, and there's a sense in which the disciples got caught in the middle of a story where the storm wasn't loving them, was it? And nature's a bit like that. Nature is just going to get you in the end, isn't it? It's kind of brutal and it doesn't love you. And people who are getting older and parts of your body don't quite work as well as they used to work and you just, it's going to get you. You know, and so the disciples are there in this situation where nature's going to get them and they go to Jesus and they think, if you really love me, you wouldn't let me go through this. When Jesus was thinking, if you knew how much I loved you, you'd be calm in a storm. That's what Jesus was thinking. So where's your story up to? Point two, the effect of troubles. I'm going to read this. And a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he woke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Now some of you might be going, What was he sleeping for? Like that's pretty good talent, right? I mean, there's some teenage boys who can kind of match it with that. It's like there can be a hurricane happening and they're asleep, you know. And you might go, well, what's he sleeping for? Is he kind of messing with them? Well, you know what? I just think he's probably tired. <laughs> probably really tired. I mean, the amount that Jesus is kicking around with people, he was probably really, really tired. I don't think he was trying to annoy them. But that's almost irrelevant. Look, he's asleep and they're freaking out. That's what's going on. And I reckon what we can see in Mark 4 is we can see four effects of trouble and i want to go through these the first one is this fear or trouble makes you resourceful it makes you resourceful what were the disciples doing well i reckon they were trying to sail this this boat that's what they were doing the water's coming in it's probably got peter and peter's up the front telling everyone what to do because he likes to do that sort of stuff he's kind of got the mouth he's probably got james and john like they've got some kind of dish or something they're trying to get the water out of the boat that keeps coming into it and they're just trying to get this thing sorted it's like you know and you might go why are they doing that uh maybe they just are caring for jesus <laughs> all right maybe they're just caring for jesus it's like He's had a big day, we're in the middle of a hurricane, we're just going to give him a bit of time, a bit of downtime, a bit of me time for Jesus, all right? I don't know, maybe they were doing that, but what was going on there is they were trying to contain the situation, true? And I think what you actually find when you're faced with a trouble or a fear in front of you is that that tends to be a reasonably typical human response. How can I contain the situation? What can I do 
to kind of control this situation so it doesn't get out of hand. And for me, I'll be uh, transparent with you, for me what that means is that I go a little bit AWOL in my relationships because my mind is just working 100 miles an hour. Just trying to work out, well, how can I, how can I avert that disaster? I'm going to cut that off at the pass. I'll cut that one, that one there off at the pass. I'm just going to work out how am I actually resourcefully using the skills and abilities that I've got? How am I actually going to limit the damage that's, that, that, that actually could happen? Um, have you ever felt like the disciples? You've kind of gone, well, God's too busy or he's, he just needs a break from me. Uh, he's too big. Um, I'm too small. This situation's too small that I'm worried about. Uh, you're thinking, oh, I should be able to handle this. I've got this one. And then you get to the point where you just go, I don't have this one and I'm completely out of control. Some of you who uh, struggle with this particular thing in, uh, in trouble, uh, being resourceful, you need to go back and read Luke 11, 5 to 8. You know what that is? It's the parable of the guy who goes and knocks on his neighbour's door in the middle of the night. And he knocks and he says, I need some food. And the guy goes, I'm in bed with my kids, man. Like, we're all, we've all gone to bed. And he, what does he do? Just keeps knocking. And Jesus is saying, and he wants to say to some of you today, it's like, don't be resourceful <laughs> in a godless sense. Be resourceful. Like, your biggest resource is Jesus, right? Amen? Is that true? So don't let him sleep <laughs> okay now i'm not saying that he's asleep because the bible says god never slumbers or sleep but do you get what i'm saying in terms of your percep perception of what's going on you just kind of think oh he's asleep he's not really paying attention he's got bigger bigger fish to fry i'm just going to irritate him i'm just going or just go and irritate him because he actually says irritate me <laughs> and he doesn't get irritated but that's kind of the the parable there is like just can't, get me out of bed wake me up you know, and some of you might, you know, you've got some things in front of you. You probably just think, well, that's too small. And he says, wake me up. Try me. Try me. Just come and wake me up. Get me up. Don't let me get away with it. Not that he's getting away with something, but you get what I'm saying? The second thing that I think trouble does uh, and fear does is that fear can cause you to think uh, that God is asleep. You see, you can get into trouble and it's not even that you think God's bad or is it inco he's incompetent. You just think he's absent or unaware. Like he's not really watching. Now, no one would ever say that, right? Did anyone here have the guts to say that you think that sometimes? I, I do. I actually think that sometimes. Now, you might go, well, hang on, isn't he the guy that's actually teaching us and he should have correct theology? Yeah, but my... my theology that may be correct is not always my practical functional theology true the stuff that i actually operate on my beliefs about god don't always inform the way that i that i operate and you know sometimes i actually think god's not watching he just doesn't really know what's going on it's just you know in my head like if you go oh does god know everything is he uh, omniscient is he all-knowing yeah, of course he is. Does he know everything about my situation? Yes, he does. In a personal, relational way, do I think he's actually attentive to what's going on to me? There's a lot of times I don't think he is attentive to it. Maybe he doesn't care. Maybe he doesn't love me. This is a really good opportunity at this point in time in trouble to get legalistic too, isn't it? Ah, what did I do? You start kind of trawling through all the crap and the rubbish in your life and you just go, I've done something because he's sleeping and he should be awake now. He's not watching me and I've got to find out what that thing is. Maybe I've got to earn his help. 
And I wonder with the disciples, it's a few thoughts that go through my head, is I, I think, did the disciples think he was pretending? That they'd done something wrong? That he didn't care enough? I think probably the, the last one probably seems to be uh, most of what's going on there. So fear can make you resourceful. Fear can cause you to think that God is asleep. Fear can cause you to curve in on yourself. You notice that question to Jesus? Don't you care that we're drowning? Who's caring that Jesus might drown as well? Now, I'm not upping them for it, right? Because that seems to be the natural kind of human inclination. Like you get in a threatening, life-threatening situation and, uh, you know, people talk about the herd and how people just want to look after themselves and they forget about other people around them. I think that's pretty typical of what happens in trouble situations. What happens? Something comes, it's fearful, it's going to get you and you just start thinking about yourself. Now, am I having a go at you for that? No, I'm not. Would I have been exactly the same as the disciples in the boat? No, I'm not. But it's an interesting dynamic, isn't it? And maybe your kids come up to you or your friends come up to you and you're just stuck in the grip of a trouble or a fear that you've got and you don't even hear them. Someone can have some kind of big tragedy going on in their life or some real difficulty. You don't hear it. You don't even know about it because one of the things that trouble actually does is it causes you to curve in on yourself. And the last one is that fear can be caustic to faith. Do you notice what happened here with the disciples? Is God's character, Jesus' character, has gone out the window. How many healings do you reckon they've seen from Jesus? Heaps. Maybe, maybe hundreds at this point in time. But fear just has this way of just annihilating people's trust um, in God. And it, it annihilates yours and mine at some point in time too. All of a sudden, Jesus has gone from being the good guy to the bad guy, hasn't he? What the hell are you doing? You just, you know, and there's probably some mums here that can probably identify that. Can you just get up off your backside and actually do something in this house? You know? It's like he's just sitting around and he's doing nothing and some, there's some help that's needed in there. And there's some mums here just going, yeah, that's me. Um, you see, faith struggles, active trust in God struggles, not in the, in the midst of a lack of knowledge, but in the midst of trouble, fear and doubt. Now, if you were in the middle of this story... It, it, was a, it was a very real likelihood that you're going to drown, right? True? And this got me thinking. I just thought, you know, there's one thing that's more important to Jesus. There's something that's more important to Jesus than your physical life. And that's you trusting him. But just think about that. Do you actually believe that? Do you actually believe? Because in troubles, that's going to be really important. The thing that's more important to you than your own physical life and your survival is your trust in Jesus. How do I know that? Because 11 of the 12 disciples died as martyrs and they lived that out, didn't they? They lived it out. It's better on the day of my death and on the day of my martyrdom that I'm trusting in Christ than that I live. So that, those are the effects of trouble. Last one is this, the master of troubles. What does Jesus do? He awoke and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. 
And there's a sense in the, in the Greek word behind this of choking, ongoing choking. And it's like not just peace be still, but peace be still and stay still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. What's amazing about that, I don't know whether you've ever been uh, at the beach when the wind's been blowing for three or four days in a row and the sea's really uh, kind of torn up by the wind. When the wind stops, the sea doesn't stop. The sea keeps going for a while because it's been stirred up. Well, what's happening here is a complete calm across the, across the board. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Do you see what's going on here? At the start, the disciples are trying to control their environment. They're being resourceful. It's like, how can we actually get ourselves through this? And then what they thought, well, we just seem to get Jesus. And they kind of tried to control Jesus, didn't they? It's like, he needs to do what we want. And you know what ended up happening? <laughs> Is they realized they were in a boat with someone that they couldn't control. And do you notice here that the disciples fear at the end of this miracle is actually greater than when they're in the middle of the storm because all of a sudden they can't control nature and they can't control this guy called Jesus and we can sympathize with the disciples on that I'm sure what's Jesus really saying he's saying why are you afraid have you still no faith you know what he's saying he's saying you can trust me if you really knew who I am and how I love you you wouldn't be scared they would have stayed calm. And I've often wondered what would it have been like if one of the disciples was able to manufacture somehow by God's leading the ability to go up and kind of have a nap next to Jesus and just go, can you just give me half of that pillow, that cushion? Because <laughs> I'm just going to have a rest. Because I know if I'm with you, I'm not going to drown ultimately. It's just not going to get me. Nature's not going to get me at the end of it all. And some of you might be going, well, how can you even do that? I don't even know how you can do that. Well, you know what? We've got something that's greater and more powerful and more helpful to us in this regard than the disciples did. We've got something different. And to find out what that is, I want to compare Jesus and Jonah. Why am I comparing Jesus and Jonah? Anyone know? Sorry? Yeah, it was a doubter. Yeah. Now, if you actually think about it, if you think about the story of Jonah, it's a very, very similar story to what we've just done. I'm just going to show you. So the first thing is Jonah and Jesus were both in a boat. Jonah and Jesus both ended up in a storm. Jonah and Jesus were asleep on the boat in the middle of the storm. Do you get this? Jonah and Jesus ended up in a situation where the storm was still. Now, there's a huge difference between how the storm was still. Jonah was thrown over the boat into the ocean. Jesus commanded that the ocean be still. And then at the end, the, um, the men on the boat with Jonah had, were filled with great fear and the disciples were filled with great fear. The whole thing is identical except for one point. That the stilling of the storm in Jonah's case required that he be thrown out. And you might sit there and you just kind of go, well, that's not the same, is it? And you know what? In one sense, you kind of go, no, it's not the same. But you know what? If, if you just take a zoom lens and pull out away from the scriptures uh, in, in Mark and you look at the whole story through the Gospels, you know, it's not that different. It's not that different.
In Matthew 12, verse 41, Jesus says this. He says, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Anyone like to have a punt at what the something is that's greater than Jonah? Who is it? Jesus. You know what Jesus is saying there in Matthew 12? Is he's saying, I am the real Jonah. I am the real Jonah. You know, someday Jesus is going to calm all storms. He's going to still all waves. He's going to destroy destruction. He's going to break brokenness. He's going to kill death. But you know, on the cross, you know what happened with Jesus? Is Jesus, like Jonah, was thrown into the storm of his father's wrath, wasn't he? That was the biggest storm. That's the biggest storm that you have to manage. And you're never, ever going to be able to manage that one. You might be a bloke that kind of backs yourself and you kind of think, yeah, I can handle it. I can do it my way. I'm just going to flex my muscles and I'm going to be a man and be independent. You won't be able to handle that storm. And there's lots of other storms you're not going to be able to handle either. And you know what actually happens in the midst of that storm is God throws his son into that storm to bring about peace for you. You see, if you know that he wouldn't abandon you or he didn't, sorry, if you know that he didn't abandon you in the storm of God's wrath that was poured down on the cross, you know he's not going to abandon you in the storms that you've got now. He hasn't gone anywhere. I want to show you a clip to close. It's a clip from, uh, please excuse me, the amazing Spider-Man. And it's, it's, I only watched it about a week or so ago and if you've got kids there's a little bit of gunfire and there's no blood or guts in anywhere but it's, I don't know, you can make a call about your kids whether you want to keep them in or not. The story goes like this, um, Spider-Man's girlfriend's been killed by the bad guy and he's just gone off the scene. That's it, he's done for a while. I think it's five months, Spider-Man wasn't around, things are happening around New York City, no one's kind of helping out with it. Um, Spider-Man's kind of hung up his boots, so to speak, to, uh, to kind of keep out of it. One of the bad guys, or the bad guy that, um, that kind of emerges at the end of uh, The Amazing Spider-Man, The Rise of Electro, is uh, this fellow who actually goes and finds some criminals and gets them out of jail and equips them with superhero suits. And what you're actually going to see here is you're going to see one of these guys has been equipped with a suit a super kind of, not a, well, not a superhero suit, but a super villain kind of suit. It gives superpowers. And you're going to see this exchange that actually goes on. I'll just roll it.
We're the little kid, right? We're the little kid. I mean, the first time I was watching that three, the little kid's running out, and I'm just knowing. I'm knowing on the inside, Spider-Man's going to be standing behind him somewhere. And the little kid says, I knew you'd come back. You see? And some of you this morning need to know that. You need to know Jesus is right with you. You need to get out underneath the safety barrier and run at the teeth of the thing that threatens you and not give up and be strong in it. Because Jesus has never left you. He's never left you. He's there. So what storm is it that you need to attack? What do you need to stand in at the moment? Maybe you need to step outside the little world that you construct for yourself. The safe little world. Is there some, some kind of change that God's calling you to? Maybe it's your children. There's a storm of trouble with your children. Maybe you're fearful of actually if you follow Jesus, you're going to miss out on a whole bunch of things. So you maintain your pleasures, your fun, your entertainment. Maybe it's work for you. Maybe work is a real storm for you at the moment. Maybe your life. Maybe it's your health. Maybe it's money. I want to say to you today, stop trying to fight and control it. Stop hiding. If you're hiding, stop hiding. Isaiah 7 verse 14 makes this really interesting statement about humanity. It says this, They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. Do you get that? You can actually go through trouble and fear 
and just complain, like not even, I don't even want it to sound negative, but you can kind of complain about it and you can be upset about it and you can be bummed out about it. And what God's saying is here is that you can actually do trouble in a way that doesn't actually cry out to God from your heart. It's kind of like you're just moaning and groaning and upset and you're anxious about it and you're worried about it and it's just kind of getting you down, but you don't actually talk to Jesus about it. And this is one of the questions that comes out in Recalibrate. What troubles have you actually gone through that you haven't actually spoken to Jesus about? And I reckon there'd be some of you here today and you kind of go, I know that Jesus knows about it and he knows that I know about it and he knows that I know that he knows about it. But you actually haven't had a conversation about it. Do you get what I'm saying? It's just kind of, yeah, he knows. And he, but it's like you haven't fronted up and just said, let's have a talk about it. I just want to tell you what crap's going on in my life right at the moment what trouble I've got going on in my life, the trouble that I'm struggling with. And I'll just say to you today, today is an opportunity for you not to to wail upon your bed. If you're someone who's been doing that, wailing upon your bed and not turning your heart and crying out from the heart to Jesus, today's a good day to start doing that in your particular trouble. And we'd love to pray with some people um, and pray that God would help you to do that because it's Jesus that stirs up faith in us and trust in us in him. And we need to call out to him to do that.